Welcome ZooAssemblyers! My name is Zuka Zalishvili and I'm the founder of ZooAssembly. ZooAssembly is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2 CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose, or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZooSMLE. Now, let's start rolling. Today we are continuing the musculoskeletal series, and today we are starting the pathology section of this series. The first group of disorders that we are going to discuss today is the overuse injuries of the elbow. And here we'll talk about the medial epicondylitis and the lateral epicondylitis. There is not too much to know about these conditions. The main things that we need to discuss is the mechanism of the injury and also side of the pain. It's also very beneficial if we know the physical exam findings of both medial epicondylitis and the lateral epicondylitis. Okay, let's start with medial epicondylitis. Before we dive deep into this condition, let's remember what the epicondyle is. Well, epicondyle is present on both femur and also on the humerus. But here we're talking about the humeral epicondyles. Epicondyles, as the name implies, are located immediately above the condyles. The condyles are those big bulges at the medial and the lateral borders of the bone. And on top of them, there are small uh, small, um, how to say, mounts, and then these are called the epicondyles. Medial epicondylitis means that there is damage to the medial epicondyle of the humerus. It's also known as the golfer's elbow. And let's talk about why this is the case. The mechanism by which the person may develop medial epicondylitis is the repetitive flexion of the wrist. The tendons of the wrist flexor muscles all insert, almost all of them insert into the medial epicondyle or near the medial epicondyle. And I can prove that to you. So I'd like you to do such thing. So try to flex your wrist and then put your hand, the other hand, on the upper medial half, upper medial part of your forearm. And when you flex your wrist, you will feel that something is uh, stretching and becoming harder under your fingers. And these are the flexors of the wrist, which insert in the vicinity of the medial epicondyle. So this is why repetitive flexion irritates the medial epicondyle and it can cause 
medial epicondylitis. The reason it's called the golfer's elbow is that uh, golfers, when they hit the ball, they, they flex their wrist. So they are at risk for repetitive wrist flexion. And this is why they may develop the medial epicondylitis. When the patient comes to the doctor with presumed medial epicondylitis, the patient will experience the pain on the forced wrist flexion and on the wrist extension. So if you can imagine these movements, like the, the physician tries to resist the wrist flexion and the patient tries to flex their wrist. In that case, the wrist flexors contract intensively and their tendons also get shorter, which uh, tract upon the medial epicondyle. This will cause the pain. On the other hand, if the patient tries to extend the wrist, this will hyperstretch the tendons of the wrist flexor muscles and this can also induce the pain. Okay, now let's move on to the lateral epicondylitis. Again, as the name implies, lateral epicondylitis is the irritation of the lateral epicondyle of the humerus. One high yield thing about these two conditions is that although they end in the suffix itis, they are not the examples of true inflammation. It's more of the tissue irritation and tissue damage than the inflammation. The lateral epicondylitis is also commonly named as the tennis elbow. And let's also talk about this. The mechanism by which the person may develop lateral epicondylitis is the repetitive extension of the wrist. Again, I can prove it to you. So I'd like you to extend your wrist and put your other hand on the upper lateral half of the forearm. When you extend the wrist, you will feel that the tendons behind, uh, under, underneath your fingers become tense, right? So this proves that the tendons of the wrist extensor muscles insert near the lateral epicondyle. Therefore, if we perform repetitive wrist extension, this can cause repetitive damage to the wrist extensor tendons, and it can also induce the traction upon the lateral epicondyle, resulting in lateral epicondylitis. And if you just think about it, when the person plays tennis, there are lots of backhand shots. Backhand shot is when you just uh, hit, the, uh, hit the racket to, to the tennis ball with wrist extension. And since tennis players are at risk for repetitive wrist extension, they are also at risk for lateral epicondylitis. When the patient with presumed lateral epicondylitis comes to the physician, first they have pain near the lateral epicondyle, but at the same time, the physical exam will reveal pain upon the forced wrist extension and also on the voluntary wrist flexion. Let's imagine these movements. 
So the patient tries to extend the wrist and the physician resists the wrist extension. In this case, the patient needs to put a great effort into contracting the wrist extensor muscles and this will put a greater stress on the wrist extensor tendons, thereby causing more pain in the vicinity of the lateral epicondyle. Okay, so this was the discussion of the overuse injuries of the elbow. We talked about medial and the lateral epicondylitis. And the one last thing is that, although we talked about the mechanisms of both of these conditions, mostly both medial and lateral epicondylitis are idiopathic. Now let's talk about the clavicle fractures. The clavicle fracture is more common in children and also it's, it's common as the birth trauma. Let's talk about this birth trauma. Very commonly, if the fetus is macrosomic, meaning he's large and he weighs he or she weighs uh, more than four kilograms it's it's difficult to deliver such baby vaginally and if uh, the vaginal delivery is still attempted this can cause the condition called shoulder dystocia shoulder dystocia is when the anterior fetal shoulder gets stuck underneath the maternal pubic symphysis and therefore, the baby's head is delivered. So, baby's head is in the vagina. However, baby's shoulders are still falling behind. Shoulder dystocia can cause spontaneous clavicular fracture because the uterine contractions and the shoulder impingement under the pubic symphysis can induce the great physical stress on the shoulder itself and on the clavicle and this can cause the clavicular fracture sorry I think I said uh, shoulder fracture but I should have said clavicular fracture on the other hand sometimes the physicians induce the iatrogenic clavicular fracture in the fetuses in order to facilitate their delivery so they literally break the clavicle in order to just uh, release the anterior shoulder from this impingement and from being stuck and then the baby may be delivered. Breaking the fetus's clavicle is definitely not the first line management of shoulder dystocia and there are many many different maneuvers that we can try to uh, manage the patient with shoulder dystocia, but this is just one possible alternative of how to uh, facilitate the delivery of the baby with shoulder dystocia. Okay, and, and the other mechanism by which clavicular fracture can occur is the direct trauma to the shoulder. If you get direct blow to the shoulder, this can definitely fracture your clavicle. Or the collarbone. Now, the clavicle is anatomically divided into three segments. We have the medial segment, which is closest to the sternum and the manubrium. We also have the middle third or middle segment, and then the lateral segment 
which is closest to the acromion. Acromion, let me remind you, is the lateral extension of the scapular spine. The reason we divide the clavicle into these three segments is that there is the particular segment which is weakest and therefore the most susceptible to fracture. The weakest point along the clavicle is the junction of the middle third and the lateral third. Therefore, the most common site of fracture in the clavicle is at the middle third segment. When the patient experiences the clavicular fracture, they usually present with this shoulder drop. This is because the clavicle can no longer hold the, the weight of the shoulder and shoulder kind of drops. At the same time, the clavicle will be shortened. The reason for this is that the fractured proximal and the distal segments of the clavicle overlap at some point. The lateral fragment of the fracture will be depressed down due to the weight of the arm and it will also be medially rotated by the arm adductors like pectoralis major. So you can imagine the situation where the distal part of the proximal fracture fragment and the proximal part of the distal fracture fragment overlap with each other. And this is what will cause the shortened clavicle. Okay, so this was the discussion about the clavicle fractures. Now let's move on to the wrist and hand injuries. The first disease that I'd like to discuss with you is the Guillain Canal syndrome. And I have a question for you guys. Do you remember from our previous episodes where the Guillain Canal is and what it contains? That's absolutely true. The Guillain Canal is located at the medial part of the wrist and Guillain Canal contains the ulnar artery and the ulnar nerve. So when we say that the patient has Guillain Canal syndrome, we mean that the patient experiences the ulnar nerve compression inside the Guillain Canal. It's so we can imagine that Guillain Canal syndrome is just like the carpal tunnel syndrome, but it's all about the ulnar nerve, while carpal tunnel syndrome is all about the median nerve. The common scenario in which we can see the Guillain Canal syndrome is in, in someone who is a cyclist and who experiences the constant pressure on the Guillain Canal from the handlebars of the motorcycle. This can definitely cause the Guillain Canal syndrome. And we won't go into much detail about the signs and symptoms of Guillain Canal syndrome because we already discussed the signs of ulnar neuropathy in an extensive detail in the previous episodes. But again, just for a reminder, uh, the Guillain Canal syndrome can cause sensory disturbances like paresthesias or pain in the medial one and a half fingers, which is the sensory distribution for the ulnar nerve. At the same time, since this is the distal lesion of the ulnar nerve, 
the lumbricol muscles of the fourth and fifth fingers will be affected. Therefore, we can receive the uh, lumbricol injury, which is also known as the ulnar claw, right? I mean, if, if the lumbricals innervated by the ulnar nerve are disrupted or uh, denervated, this can cause the ulnar claw. Okay, this was the Guillain Canal syndrome. Now let's move on to the carpal tunnel syndrome. The carpal tunnel syndrome is higher yield, and there are more things to discuss around this syndrome. Again, as we already mentioned in our previous episodes, the carpal tunnel syndrome is the compression of the median nerve inside the carpal tunnel. And the carpal tunnel, let's remind ourselves, is located between the transverse carpal ligament, also known as the flexor retinaculum, and the carpal bones. When there is the compression of the median nerve, then the patient experiences the sensory and motor disturbances in the median nerve distribution. First, the patient commonly complains of the paresthesias and the pain and numbness in the lateral three and a half digits. So it's the thumb, index finger, middle finger, and the lateral half of the ring finger. At the same time, the patients with carpal tunnel syndrome commonly experience the thinner eminence atrophy, and therefore they develop something called the ape hand. This is because the apes have a flat thinner eminence, um, and uh, the thinner eminence of the patient with carpal tunnel syndrome looks like that of the ape. Now let me give you a quick question here, guys. Zoosimilators, do you remember which functions will be affected in case of thinner atrophy. So I'm basically asking which muscles can uh, comprise the thinner atrophy. Absolutely. If you remember, the mnemonic by which we remember the muscles of both thinner and uh, hypothenar uh, eminences, uh, these are the, um, uh, this is the OAF, so O-A-F. Therefore, the muscles include opponens pollicis, abductor pollicis brevis, and the flexor pollicis brevis. The function that will be completely lost with thinner eminence atrophy is the thumb opposition performed by the opponent's pollicis. This is because we have only one opponent's pollicis muscle, whereas the flexor pollicis and abductor pollicis exist in, in the groups of two. So we have short and long muscles of the uh, thumb flexor and thumb abductor. Okay, now let's continue with the carpal tunnel syndrome. There is one very high yield point about the palmar sensation in the context of the carpal tunnel syndrome. Surprisingly, the, the palmar sensation will be spared in carpal tunnel syndrome. Now, could you please tell me why this is the case? So, why we have the 
intact sensation on the palmar aspect of the median nerve while we have the pain, paresthesias, and the numbness in the uh, median nerve distribution of the fingers. Exactly. Exactly, that's right. So there is one branch of the median nerve called the palmar cutaneous branch. And the palmar cutaneous branch is responsible for innervating the skin over the lateral half of the palm. The palmar cutaneous branch enters the hand external to the carpal tunnel. So this branch uh, arises from the median nerve before the median nerve enters the carpal tunnel. And therefore, even if the median nerve gets compressed in the carpal tunnel, this will not affect the palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerve. And this is why the patients with carpal tunnel syndrome still have the intact sensation over their palms. Now, there are two physical exam maneuvers which can suggest the carpal tunnel syndrome. The first one is Tinel's test, and second is Fallon maneuver. Tinel's sign is when we tap the wrist. So, Tinel for tap, right? When you percuss the wrist or tap the wrist, and this causes tingling in the median nerve distribution of the hand. The reason for this phenomenon is that tapping the wrist on the volar or the flexor surface will further irritate the median nerve, exacerbating the symptoms of the median neuropathy. The Fallon maneuver is when the patient flexes both wrists against one another at 90 degrees and holds the hands in this position for several seconds. This will also induce tingling in the median nerve distribution. And I would like to, I would like you to think about what happens here. When we flex our wrists against each other at 90 degrees, we narrow the carpal tunnel and we further compress the median nerve and the carpal tunnel. In people who have who don't have the carpal tunnel syndrome, this transient compression of the carpal tunnel will not induce any symptoms. However, if the person has median nerve compression in the carpal tunnel at the baseline, then flexing the wrists and narrowing down the carpal tunnel will further exacerbate the symptoms of the carpal tunnel syndrome. Okay, and the last thing that I'd like to talk to you about the carpal tunnel syndrome is the causes of this syndrome. First, the pregnancy can be associ associated with uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. The reason for this is that, as we all know, pregnancy is associated with an increased uh, total plasma volume. This increases the hydrostatic pressure in the vessels, and this can cause edema potentially anywhere in the body, including the carpal tunnel. So the pregnant women may develop edema in the carpal tunnel, and this edema will compress the median nerve. Rheumatoid arthritis is another common cause of the carpal tunnel syndrome. Rheumatoid arthritis causes the formation 
of the inflamed granulation tissue called the penis. And the penis is characterized by rapid extension into the soft tissues, even in the cartilage and the bones. And if, if the penis forms in between the carpal bones, this can compress the median nerve in the carpal tunnel. The hypothyroidism can also account for the carpal tunnel syndrome. This is because hypothyroidism can induce the deposition of glycosaminoglycans in the carpal tunnel. Let me remind you from the biochemistry that glycosaminoglycans are those complex carbohydrates which hold water around them. Therefore, when, when the glycosaminoglycans deposit in the tissues or in the spaces like carpal tunnel, they also draw water along with them and this will cause swelling and uh, just, uh, occupation of much of the space. And this is why the median nerve can get compressed in the carpal tunnel in the patient with hypothyroidism. Diabetes can also cause the carpal tunnel syndrome. And I think that the connection here is clearer. The diabetes is notorious for causing peripheral neuropathy due to several mechanisms, including the osmotic damage of the Schwann cells, Due to sorbitol accumulation and also the oxidative damage of uh, the nerve cells itself due to the advanced glycosylated end products and both of these mechanisms can contribute to the uh, median neuropathy acromegaly can cause the carpal tunnel syndrome by enlargement of the carpal bones we know that uh, acromegaly is characterized by enlargement of the bones and their cartilaginous structures. So if the carpal bones enlarge, they can obstruct or they can narrow down the carpal tunnel, compressing the median nerve. Another reason, potential reason for carpal tunnel syndrome is the dialysis-related amyloidosis. We'll talk about uh, dialysis-related amyloidosis extensively in our pathology series, but let me ask you a question. Guys, could you please tell me what substance accumulates as an amyloid in dialysis-related amyloidosis? That's absolutely amazing. That's awesome. It's, it's truly the beta-2 microglobulin. And the beta-2 microglobulin is the component of the major histocompatibility 1 complex, right? MHC1. Um, this is because the dialysis machine cannot filter the beta-2 microglobulin. So this beta-2 microglobulin gets back to the patient's body after going through the dialysis machine. And for some reason, the beta-2 microglobulin has predilection towards the musculoskeletal system. So it deposits in the uh, joint spaces, it can deposit on the bones, and this is why we can get the carpal tunnel syndrome in patients with dialysis-related amyloidosis. The beta-2 microglobulin can also deposit in the carpal tunnel. And finally, 
The last reason for carpal tunnel syndrome can be just the repetitive use. Okay, this was the carpal tunnel syndrome. And the last uh, hand injury that I'd like to discuss with you is the metacarpal neck fracture. First, let's remind ourselves which bones are called the metacarpal bones. Well, metacarpal means that these bones are beyond the carpal bones or beyond the wrist bones. So these are the bones after the wrist bones which uh, basically lie underneath the palm of the hand. And the metacarpal neck fracture occurs when the patient just hits something or someone, hopefully something and not someone, with the closed fist. When you hit something with the closed fist, this causes a great mechanical impact on your metacarpal bones because you hit something with your knuckles. The knuckles, medically speaking, are the metacarpal phalangeal joints. And when you hit something with your knuckles, this will mm, transmit the mechanical, uh, mechanical impact to the metacarpal bones and their bodies. And this can cause the metacarpal neck fracture. Due to the mechanism, this fracture is sometimes also known as the boxer's fracture because boxers, they, they fight on the arena with uh, their fists. And the most common metacarpal that's fractured in the metacarpal neck fracture is the fifth metacarpal. This is because the fifth metacarpal is the shortest and the weakest and it can definitely get fractured with the direct impact of the fist blow. Right, okay, now we're done with the wrist and hand injuries, and now let's move on to the common knee conditions. The first knee condition that I'd like to discuss with you is the unhappy triad. So right at the bed, we understand that there should be three structures which are damaged in unhappy triad, right? Because this is why it's called triad. The three structures which are damaged in the unhappy triad include the anterior cruciate ligament, medial collateral ligament, and the medial meniscus. Now let's discuss the mechanism of how unhappy triad can develop and I'm sure that this will become clearer of why these three structures are damaged in this knee condition. Unhappy triad is most commonly inflicted by the laterally directed force to the planted foot. In other words, this is the valgus force which, which moves from the lateral side of the knee to the medial side of the knee. And if your foot is planted, in other words, if your foot is stabilized on the ground, this can put a great deal of mechanical stress on these three structures. In other words, the valgus force on the planted foot excessively stretches the anterior cruciate ligament and the medial collateral ligament. 
Now, a medial meniscus is physically attached to the medial collateral ligament. Therefore, whenever we have the injury to the medial collateral ligament, there is always a possibility of the injury of the medial meniscus as well. So if anterior cruciate ligament and the medial collateral ligament stretch to the point that they tear up, this can also cause tearing of the medial meniscus. Okay, so now we know what the unhappy triad is, and we also know the mechanism by which unhappy triad is caused. But there is one very high yield thing to know. Although the medial meniscus is the meniscus that's damaged in unhappy triad, it's worth noting that the lateral meniscus is much more commonly damaged in the sports injuries than the medial meniscus. And even more, lateral meniscus can get damaged in conjunction with the anterior cruciate ligament and the medial collateral ligament. So the baseline is that the lateral meniscus is much more commonly damaged meniscus than the medial meniscus. Okay, and, and the clinical presentation of the unhappy triad includes severe, severe acute pain, and the signs of joint instability. Even more, the tear of the anterior cruciate ligament can also induce the hemarthrosis. Okay, now let's move on to another knee condition known as the prepatellar bursitis. I'd like to discuss the name with you before we dive deep into this condition, because I think that if we understand the name, of this condition, then it's really easy to retain all of the information. Now, the name sounds like this, prepatellar bursitis. In other words, this is the inflammation of the bursa immediately anterior to the patella. Let's remind ourselves that the patella is the same thing as the kneecap. And a kneecap is a very superficial bone. You can literally feel your kneecap if you palpate it. And since the kneecap is such a superficial bone, it needs cushion and it needs protection from the external forces. This is why we have prepatellar bursa, which is the uh, circular or, yeah, I would say circular sac full of amniotic, uh, full, sorry, not amniotic, but full of the synovial fluid, which cushions the patella. And prepatellar bursitis, again, is the inflammation of the prepatellar bursa. Most commonly, prepatellar bursitis can be caused by the repeated trauma, and it can also be inflicted by the pressure from excessive kneeling. This is why the prepatellar bursitis is sometimes known as the housemaid's knee. So you can imagine the housemaid who uh, wipes the uh, floor with his or her, uh, her uh, hands and who is kneeling down. And this, can, th this posture can cause the prepatellar bursitis. Okay, and the last knee condition that we'll discuss in this subsection is the popliteal cyst. Popliteal cyst is also known as the Baker cyst. The popliteal cyst is the accumulation of fluid 
in the gastrocnemius semimembranosus bursa. Now let's take a step back and explain what this means. As we know, the, um, the posterior leg compartment is composed of the muscle called triceps surae muscle, right? And the triceps surae muscle consists of two heads of gastrocnemius and one head of soleus muscles. Semimembranosus muscle is located in the posterior hip compartment. It's the part of the hamstring muscles which are responsible for the knee flexion and hip extension. When we say gastrocnemius semimembranosus bursa, we mean that there is this uh, bursa or the um, cyst structure filled with the synovial fluid that's located between these two muscles. And when there is excessive stretching of the popliteal fossa, the fluid can excessively accumulate into this bursa, causing the popliteal cyst. And even more, the gastrocnemius semimembranosus bursa has direct connection with the synovial space of the knee joint. Therefore, potentially any pathology of the knee can lead to popliteal cyst. So anytime there is significant effusion in the knee joint space, this can also induce effusion in the, uh, in the bursa behind the knee. But two most common conditions which are associated with popliteal cyst include osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. There is one condition which I would love to compare and contrast the popliteal cyst with. And this condition is popliteal artery aneurysm. As we all know, popliteal artery and vein, along with the tibial nerve, are located behind uh, the knee in the popliteal fossa. And when the patient has peripheral artery disease, this can cause the popliteal artery aneurysm. And uh, if you think about it from the perspective of the physician, popliteal artery aneurysm also presents as the bulge behind the knee. Now, how do we know whether this bulge is popliteal cyst or popliteal artery aneurysm? The way we can determine this is by auscultating the bulge. So we put the stethoscope and we listen to the sounds. If the patient has the popliteal artery aneurysm, it means that the blood flows through this aneurysm, right? And we know that uh, the blood flow inside the aneurysm is turbulent, so uh, the physician will be able to auscultate the brewery if the patient has popliteal artery aneurysm. However, if this is the popliteal cyst, due to the passive fluid accumulation, there will be no brewery and there will be no pulsation. This is because the fluid inside the popliteal cyst is not blood. It's the synovial fluid coming from the knee joint. So again, feeling the pulsation and auscultating this uh, bulge behind the knee can differentiate between the popliteal artery aneurysm and the popliteal cyst.
Okay. Now we have already discussed the common knee conditions, including the unhappy triad, prepatellar bursitis, and popliteal cyst. Let me tell you about Match a Resident. Match a Resident is an organization that helps residency applicants find the perfect residency programs for them. Although it's particularly helpful for international medical graduates, anyone is welcome to Metro Resident. It is trusted by over 150,000 international medical graduates for over 17 years. Metro Resident gives you detailed information about each program's requirements, such as visa status, USMLE scores, and more. Metro Resident annually updates these requirements through in-person conversation with program coordinators every year to give you the newest information possible. This way, you invest your time and money in the residency programs where you have high chances of matching. To find out more about this amazing organization, check out the website www.matcharesident.com. Match a resident is the path to your success. The next set of diagnoses that we are going to discuss is the common musculoskeletal conditions. The first condition that I'd like to talk to you about is the De Corvain tenosynovitis. Before we move any further, let's define the term tenosynovium. Just like the joint spaces are surrounded by the synovial sheaths, the part of the tendons are also surrounded by their own sheaths. And the tendon sheath is known as the tenosynovium. When we say decorvain tenosynovitis, it sounds like there is a true inflammation of the tendon sheaths, but this is not true. So it's, it's the non-inflammatory irritation of the tendon sheath, and the reason for this is the thickening of the tendons. Now, decorvain tenosynovitis is a localized condition which affects the thumb. There is non-inflammatory thickening of two muscle tendons. This is abductor pollicis longus tendon, and extensor pollicis brevis tendon. Both of these tendons are located at the dorsal, uh, like dorsolateral wrist, under the extensor retinaculum. So the patient will have pain and tenderness immediately above the radial styloid process. Radial styloid process is also located at the dorsolateral, um, uh, dorsolateral wrist. Okay, and that there is one test by which we can at least suggest, at least suspect the decorvain tenosynovitis. This is Finkelstein test. Finkelstein test is when the patient puts her or his thumb in the palm covers the thumb with all the other four fingers and then causes the ulnar deviation of the wrist. So per, he or she performs the ulnar deviation of the wrist. 
This action will stretch out the tendons of both abductor pulses longus and extensor pulses brevis, and this will reproduce the pain. So this is when we say that the Finkelstein test is positive. Now, when do the patient develop decromane stenosynovitis? Well, uh, the patients who are prone to repetitive thumb abduction and extension are the ones who end up with decrovane tenosynovitis. This may be a new parent. Let's imagine that the couple has a baby and, and, and when you hold the baby, you need to hold his or her head, right? And when you hold the baby's head, your thumb is automatically extended and abducted. This is the position by which you can firmly and safely hold the baby's head. It's in, and since, uh, the, since you hold the baby multiple times during the day, you have frequent repetitive abduction and extension of the thumb. And this can definitely increase the risk for decrovane tenosynovitis. Any other occupation or the habit that can cause repetitive thumb abduction and extension can also induce decrovane tenosynovitis. These include the golfing, also records, record sports, and also the thumb texters, people who text mostly with their thumbs. So this was the decrovane tenosynovitis. Now let's move on to the ganglion cyst. As the name implies, ganglion cyst is a cyst, so it's the fluid-filled swelling. And ganglion cyst usually overlies either tendon sheath or the joint. The most common and the classical place for ganglion cyst to develop is the dorsal side of the wrist. And believe me, uh, this is the place that is most commonly asked about on the USMLE Step 1 exam. They may actually show you the image of the patient with the cyst or the bulge at the dorsal wrist. And this cyst or the bulge, if it's not inflamed, if it's not looking strange, is most likely the ganglion cyst. The ganglion cyst, regardless of where it arises, is due to the herniation of the connective tissue. So there is uh, connective tissue either around the joint space or we also talked about the tendon sheaths and when this connective tissue herniates, then it can accommodate the fluid and this will create the ganglion cyst. Very commonly, the question writers ask about the prognosis and the possible complications of the ganglion cyst. And let me tell you one thing, ganglion cyst has an excellent prognosis because it usually resolves on its own. You most probably do not need any type of intervention. It will go away spontaneously. At the same time, ganglion cyst is benign in a sense that it does not have the neurovascular complications. It does not compress any arteries, it does not compress any nerves, for example, the radial nerve. So again, ganglion cyst is free of the, uh, almost free of the neurovascular complications. Right, now that we've talked about the ganglion cyst, 
Let's move on to the iliotibial band syndrome. And before we move any further, just as we do, let's break down the word iliotibial band syndrome. We have this structure called the iliotibial band, which, as the name implies, spreads from the ilium all the way to the lateral tibia. Right? So this is the iliotibial band. And iliotibial band syndrome is when this iliotibial band rubs against the lateral femoral epicondyle. This is because the iliotibial band and the lateral femoral epicondyle are very close to each other anatomically. And if the patient uh, has repetitive knee flexion and extension, the lateral femoral epicondyle can rub against the iliotibial band. The classic activity which leads to repetitive knee flexion and extension is the running, right? So if the patient runs, then this can cause repetitive friction of the iliotibial band and the lateral femoral, femoral condyle, and the patient will experience the pain at the lateral knee. Again, it's very important to know who are susceptible to the iliotibial band syndrome, we should also know which two structures rub against each other, and we should also know where the pain typically arises, which is the lateral knee. Right, now let's move on to another condition called limb compartment syndrome, or simply compartment syndrome. Before we dive deep into this condition, let me tell you one thing. Compartment syndrome is not musculo it is not only the musculoskeletal condition compartment syndrome can develop in any closed space in the body we can also have abdominal compartment syndrome we can have the orbital compartment syndrome but right now we are talking about the limb compartment syndrome if you want to find out more about the different types of compartment syndrome i would suggest that you Listen to our surgery episodes from the USMLE Step 2 CK series. Okay, so back to the limb compartment syndrome. Generally, our limbs, our limbs contain lots of muscles, and the different muscle groups are surrounded or enclosed by the common fascia. So it's as if this fascial membrane surrounds all of the muscles within one compartment. And when we say that the patient has compartment limb compartment syndrome, we mean that the pressure inside that particular fascial compartment is increased. Now the official definition of limb compartment syndrome is when the fascial intracompartmental pressure increases to more than 30 millimeters of mercury. Another measure for the intracompartmental pressure is uh, basically the difference between diastolic blood pressure and the compartment pressure. If the difference between diastolic blood pressure and the compartment pressure is less than 30 millimeter mercury it means that compartment pressure is very high and it 
almost approximates the diastolic blood pressure. Whenever the pressure increases in the enclosed space, in this case the fascial compartment, this causes compression of the vessels, both venules and the arterioles. Now you can imagine that if, we, if you compress the veins and the venules, then there will be decreased venous outflow. At the same time, if you compress the arterioles, there will be total ischemia and there will be anoxia, which literally means no oxygen delivery, and this will result in necrosis of the structures within that fascial compartment. There are several um, different scenarios which can potentially lead to limb compartment syndrome. First, long bone fractures are associated with the limb compartment syndrome. This is because if the patient experiences the long bone fracture, the fracture is at risk for displacement. And if the fracture fragments get displaced, they will compress the surrounding vessels, including veins and the arteries, and this can increase the pressure inside the fascial compartment. At the same time, reperfusion injury can result in compartment syndrome. So let's imagine that the patient has the acute limb ischemia. Acute limb ischemia is when the thrombus occludes the uh, major artery of the limb and this causes life-threatening limb ischemia. Maybe not life-threatening but definitely limb-threatening. And uh, we can uh, definitely give the anticoagulants like the heparin and once the thrombus is broken down then there is reperfusion of that ischemic area of the limb. Now reperfusion can cause the edema of the cells and if there is edema of the cells within the facial compartment this can cause the limb compartment syndrome and finally animal venoms can sometimes increase the pressure within the facial compartment leading to the limb compartment syndrome now let's talk about the symptoms and signs of the limb compartment syndrome the limb compartment syndrome is characterized by excruciating pain and very tense and very swollen fascial compartments which even get worse with the passive stretch of those muscles. Uh, the muscle damage and increased creatine kinase representing rhabdomyolysis is the late complication of limb compartment syndrome. What I'm trying to say here is that rhabdomyolysis does not occur immediately after the limb compartment syndrome occurs. It's almost the, uh, almost the latest and the last sign of the limb compartment syndrome. There are five main signs of the limb compartment syndrome, and these signs are actually identical to those of arterial insufficiency signs. And... The logic here is very clear. We already said that limb compartment syndrome causes compression of the arterioles. Therefore, in a sense, limb compartment syndrome is arterial insufficiency plus the other things like uh, nerve damage, muscle damage, venous outflow obstruction, and so on. Therefore, 
it's it's uh, not surprising that the signs and symptoms of limb compartment syndrome and arterial insufficiency will be similar if not identical and these signs and symptoms can be remembered by the by the mnemonic five p's first first p is pain pain occurs due to ischemia we know that when the tissues and the cells are devoid of oxygen they go to anaerobic glycolysis and the end product of the anaerobic glycolysis is the lactic acid which which increases the pain in the muscles at the same time the limb compartment syndrome is characterized by the pallor of the affected limb so there will be pallor and pulselessness this is because the blood doesn't flow into that compartment anymore so the blood is what gives our body the, the this light red color it means that the blood is perfusing our tissues but whenever blood is no longer able to go into the tissues then the skin overlying that tissue becomes pale and the patient will also have pulselessness because the blood can no longer reach the tissues one of the first signs of the limb compartment syndrome is the paresthesias because the nerves are very susceptible to the anoxic injury and one of the latest signs of the compartment syndrome is paralysis paralysis indicates the irreversible muscle damage and as we already mentioned irreversible mu muscle damage occurs uh, at the is the last sign of the limb compartment syndrome okay now that we've talked about the limb compartment syndrome Let's move on to the medial tibial stress syndrome. Medial tibial stress syndrome is also known as the shin splints. And uh, as the name implies, medial tibial stress syndrome is the condition which affects the medial tibia. More correctly, the tibial cortex medially of the tibial bone. It's very common in the runners and also in the military recruits. And the mechanism of the medial tibial, medial tibial stress syndrome is that the bone resorption outpaces the bone formation in the tibial cortex. In other words, bone resorption is much faster than bone formation in the tibial cortex. This will result in weakened tibial cortex and this can result in shin pain and diffuse tenderness I'd like you to remember the word diffuse tenderness in the context of the medial tibial stress syndrome the reason I'm stressing the diffuse tenderness so much is that we need to differentiate the medial tibial stress syndrome from the stress fracture the patient may also have the tibial stress fracture but one way we can differentiate the medial tibial stress syndrome from the stress fracture is that the stress fracture regardless of its location is always accompanied by the localized pain the patient can literally pinpoint the place where she or he feels the pain but this is in contrast to the medial tibial uh, stress syndrome where the pain is diffuse along the medial tibia okay so this was a short discussion but still very high yield to differentiate medial tibial stress syndrome from the tibial stress fracture 
The next condition that I'd like to talk to you about is the plantar fasciitis. As the name implies, it's, it's the inflammation of the plantar fascia or plantar aponeurosis. It's the flat connective tissue which lies uh, on, the, uh, on, on the sole of the foot. And the characteristic signs of the plantar fasciitis include the, include the heel pain and the heel tenderness. The reason for this is that the insertion point of plantar fasciitis to the bone is the heel. It's the calcaneus. And uh, this is why plantar fasciitis transmits the pain to the heel. And the pain is especially severe with the first steps in the morning when the patient gets out of bed or after the prolonged period of inactivity. Again, here's the general theme. Whenever the patient has inflammatory joint pain or uh, tendon pain, any inflammatory musculoskeletal condition, the physical activity and the movement alleviates and restricts the inflammation. Once the patient gets physically inactive, whether it's due to sleep or due to rest or anything, the inflammation gets intense and this can cause severe pain when the patient starts physical activity after the period of physical inactivity. Okay, this was plantar fasciitis in short. And now the last condition in this subsection is the temporal mandibular disorders. Please note the fact that we are saying temporal mandibular disorders and not disorder because temporal mandibular disorders is, is the group of disorders. It's not just one condition. The thing that unites them is that all of these disorders involve the temporal mandibular joint or TMJ and the muscles of mastication. Now, let me give you a question, guys. I'll be very, very happy if you can tell me the muscles of mastication. Can you tell me the muscles of mastication? That's amazing. That's literally amazing. It's temporalis, it's masseter, medial pterygoid, and the lateral pterygoid. The first three muscles, the temporalis, masseter, and medial pterygoid, close the jaw, while the lateral pterygoid opens up the jaw. So again, when we say that the patient has TMD, um, or temporal mandibular disorder, this disorder includes the temporal mandibular joint and the muscles of mastication. Interestingly, the temporal mandibular disorders are multifactorial in origin. There is no one particular risk factor which predisposes the patient to TMD. There are many of them. For example, the patient can simply have the TMJ trauma, which can lead to bone malformation or subtle bone fractures leading to the TMD. At the same time, if the patient has a, uh, the, the poor head and neck posture, this can actually affect the TMJ. So aberrant trigeminal nerve pain processing can make the patient feel pain at the temporal mandibular joint. And finally, even psychological factors can contribute to TMD. The TMD 
usually presents with this constant and dull unilateral pain at the site of TNJ. The pain usually worsens with the jaw movement because when we move our jaw, we move the temporal mandibular joint as well. Because this is the point where mandible is connected to the rest of the skull, including the maxilla. And, and uh, the pain can actually be referred to the head and the ear. So the patient with TMD can also present with otalgia, also known as the ear pain, and the headache. And uh, at the same time, the patients commonly have the TMJ dysfunction, so they may have the limited uh, range of motion at that TMJ. Okay. And uh, now we have discussed all the common musculoskeletal conditions that we wanted to discuss. And the last set of conditions by which we'll finish off this episode is the childhood musculoskeletal conditions. The first childhood musculoskeletal condition that I'd like to talk to you about is the radial head subluxation. As the name itself implies, the radial head subluxation is when the head of the radius or the radial bone slips out of its normal position. It's also known as the nursemaid's elbow. And the idea here is that if, if uh, the person, whether it's a nursemaid or a parent or the guardian, if the person pulls on the arm of a little, of a child, this can displace the radius from the annular ligament. The annular ligament is literally the ring of connective tissue that holds the radial head in place immediately distal to the humerus. So again, uh, the radial head subluxation is common in children, especially those at less than five years old. And if uh, the adult person pulls on the arm of the child, this can cause the radial head uh, subluxation. It's extremely painful for children, and the classic presentation of the child with radial head subluxation is that the affected forearm will be, uh, in, will be pronated, it will also be flexed, and it will be held close to the body. The way we can treat the radial head subluxation is that we can either hyperpronate the forearm, and this is how we can reduce the radial head back, its, back into its normal position, or on the other hand, we can supinate the forearm and then flex the elbow. This maneuver will also place the radial head into its normal condition. So again, radial head subluxation is treated with the closed reduction. The next condition is the Osgood-Schlatter disease. The Osgood-Schlatter disease is also known as the traction apophysitis. Let's talk about what this means. So apophysis is the bone, bony outgrowth, the normal bony outgrowth. And the tibia has the proximal tibial tuberosity or tibial tubercle, which is the apophysis. It's the normal outgrowth on the anterior tibia onto which the patellar tendon inserts. So again, insertion site for the patellar tendon on the tibia is the tibial tuberosity. Uh, 
when the patient undergoes the growth spurt, and also if, if the child is the runner or he or she is the jumping athlete, the child puts a great deal of stress, the mechanical stress, on the tibial tuberosity. Let's imagine that the child is a runner. Running causes repetitive knee flexion and extension. Whenever we extend the knee, this is caused by the contraction of the quadriceps femoris muscle. This will just uh, induce the traction on the patellar tendon and the traction of the patellar tendon will induce traction of the tibial tuberosity. So we have the chronic avulsion of this tibial tuberosity, which is the secondary ossification center of the tibial bone. Again, we already mentioned that Osgood-Schlatter syndrome or Osgood-Schlatter disease is most common in the adolescents after their growth spurt. And Osgood-Schlatter disease pre presents as the anterior knee pain. Again, the reason for this is that the tibial tuberosity is located on the anterior aspect of the tibia. If the Osgood-Schlatter disease sorry, is uh, severe enough and persistent, it can cause the permanent deformity immediately below the knee. So the patient may have the knobby knees, so there might be a small bulge below the knee, which will correspond to chronically damaged tibial tuberosity. The next condition is the patellofemoral pain syndrome, or PFPS. Even though we are discussing the PFPS in the section of the childhood musculoskeletal conditions, it's worth noting that PFPS can also be seen in young adults. And let's break down the word patellofemoral pain syndrome. As the name implies, there is the pain in the space between the patella and the femur. If you imagine the anatomical image of the knee, there is a space behind patella and in front of the femur. And patients with patellofemoral pain syndrome experience the pain exactly in this location. So again, they have the anterior knee pain. Patellofemoral pain syndrome is an overuse injury, and the most common patient population experiencing the PFPS is actually the young female athletes. PFPS presents as the anterior knee pain, which is exacerbated by any activity characterized by persistent knee flexion. So, for example, prolonged sitting or climbing the stairs can exacerbate the patellofemoral pain syndrome. The reason being is that uh, the knee flexion, whether it's due to prolonged sitting or climbing the stairs, narrows down the space between patella and the femur, and therefore it will exacerbate the pain. The test by which we can diagnose the patellofemoral pain syndrome is accordingly known as the patellofemoral compression test. This is when the examiner presses down the patient's patella or the kneecap, and then the patient is instructed to extend the knee against the examiner's resistance. I'd like you to imagine the situation. So examiner presses down the patella, and at the same time, the patient tries to extend the knee. So this will 
put the patella and the femur even closer to each other. And it will narrow down the space between these two bony structures. And the pain uh, will be exacerbated or reproduced by this physical exam maneuver. Okay, this was patellofemoral pain syndrome. Now the last condition, uh, sorry, not the last, but the next condition is uh, developmental dysplasia of the hip, also known as the DDH. Developmental dysplasia of the hip is the developmental anomaly, as the name implies, and it's when the acetabulum, or the groove on the pelvic bone into which the femoral head inserts, is shallow. So acetabulum is too shallow or too superficial in order to accommodate the femoral head in the femoral joint space. The risk factor for developmental dysplasia of the hip is the breech presentation because uh, the breech presentation means that the hips are flexed and this can disrupt the normal acetabular development in utero. As you can imagine, if the acetabulum is very shallow and superficial, either unilaterally or bilaterally, then the femoral head on that side is, is prone to dislocate because the femoral head can literally not insert into the acetabulum. Two physical exam maneuvers by which we can at least suspect the developmental dysplasia of the hip are Ortolani and Barlow maneuvers. The Barlow maneuver is when the physician, most likely a pediatrician, adducts the hips and exerts the downward pressure. This is the maneuver which displaces the femoral head from the acetabulum if the patient has DDH. The Ortolani maneuver is the exact opposite. This is when the pediatrician abducts the hips and exerts the anterior pressure, putting the femoral head back into the acetabulum. And if the pediatrician notes excessive movement and instability on these two physical exam maneuvers, then we can use the ultrasound to confirm the developmental dysplasia of the hip. Now the very high yield thing is that x-ray is not used until the age of 4 to 6 months and the reason for this is that the cartilage is not ossified yet. The, the bony structures are not uh, sufficiently ossified and therefore we won't be able to see the enough uh, structures in the hip joints to diagnose the DDH with the x-ray. One more important thing about the DDH, the newborns, healthy newborns without DDH may also have the clunk or excessive mobility of the hip joint, but that's normal because generally the newborns have uh, the broader range of motion in almost all joints. However, if that clunk is persistent and if it doesn't resolve on the uh, first uh, postnatal visit, then we can suspect that the patient may be having the DDH. The treatment for developmental dysplasia of the hip is something called the Pavlik's harness. Pavlik's harness is the harness 
which is placed on the newborn's trunk and it also fixates the uh, lower extremities in a particular posture. I'd like you to Google the Publix harness, but let me describe what this is. So this is the harness which keeps the hips abducted and flexed. Uh, this is the position at which the femoral head is best placed in the acetabulum. So uh, the, uh, the, uh, the maintenance of the femoral head inside the acetabulum helps, helps to develop the acetabulum normally after birth. Now that we've talked about the DDH, let's move on to the leg calve parthes disease, also known as LCP or simply parthes disease. Parthes disease is the idiopathic avascular necrosis of the femoral head in children. The typical age of onset for the Parthes disease is anywhere from 5 to 7 years and it's a very insidious condition. It's not acute. The child will gradually start complaining of the hip pain and then child may start to limp. Leg calvi parthes disease is much more common in the males with the male to female ratio of 4 to 1 and importantly the initial x-ray of the hip may be absolutely normal. It's just like the scaphoid fracture. As we already mentioned the initial x-ray in case of scaphoid fracture may be normal, but this should not make us exclude the scaphoid fracture. The same is true for the leg calvi parthes disease. The initial x-ray may be normal, but again, this should not make us exclude the parthes disease completely from our differential diagnosis list. And the last, very last condition that we're going to discuss in this episode is the slipped capital femoral epiphyses shortly known as the skiffy. I'd like you to pay attention to the name. It's the slipped capital femoral epiphysis. It means that there is slippage of the femoral head relative to the femoral neck. The classic patient suffering from the skiffy is the obese teenager or obese adolescent who then presents with a heat pain and also with the referred knee pain. The patient may also have the changed gait. And let's now talk about the mechanism of how the skiffy develops. When the adolescent undergoes growth spurt, there is increased mechanical stress on the bones. And then if the adolescent is obese, all of that weight increases the axial force on the femoral head. And when the axial force reaches the certain point, then the epiphyses or the femoral head displaces relative to the femoral neck, just like the scoop of ice, ice cream, just slipping of the cone. This is the this is the way how um, the radiologists may describe this skiffy. So scoop of ice cream, which corresponds to the femoral head, slipping of a cone corresponding to the femoral neck. Skiffy is diagnosed via x-ray and most of the times it's a very clear diagnosis via x-ray. You can literally see that the femoral head is slipped or displaced relative to the femoral neck. And uh, Skiffy requires surgical intervention. It requires surgical pinning. So if you uh, 
paid close attention, we discussed these three last three conditions in a chronological order. DDH most commonly presents in newborns. Lick-Calvi-Perthes disease occurs most commonly in the children of around ages 5 to 7 years, and then Skiffy occurs in adolescents or teenagers. The reason we are emphasizing this chronological order is that the age of the child can also help you tremendously on the exam to find out which uh, hip pathology the patient has. So if this is a newborn with uh, excessive hip instability and clunk, then you think mostly about the DDH. If this is a child from the age of 5 to 7 with the insidious onset of the hip pain, then maybe that's Perthes. But then if they describe to you the obese teenager with the x-ray finding of the ice cream slipping of the cone, then you know that it's the Skiffy. Okay, we've come to an end of our today's episode, and let's summarize everything that we've discussed today. In this episode, we talked about the overused injuries of the elbow, specifically the medial and the lateral epicondylitis. We also discussed the clavicle fracture, the common scenarios when the clavicle fracture is, uh, is common, and we also talked about the most common site along the clavicle where the fracture is inflicted. Then we moved on to the wrist and hand injuries, and we talked about conditions like Guillain Canal syndrome, carpal tunnel syndrome, and metacarpal neck fracture. Then we moved on to the common knee conditions. We also discussed the common musculoskeletal conditions, and we wrapped up our discussion by talking about the childhood musculoskeletal conditions. You can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attention, Zeus Emil and see you on the next episode.